Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Wow. So today we have an unbelievable guest. I mean, someone that has done it so many times that I even got dizzy, you know, when I heard how many times, you know, he's built, scaled, financed, exited, you know, to like incredible companies like Microsoft, Merck. I mean, you name it. I think that you're going to be quite inspired with the with his journey. And we're going to be learning quite a bit here. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, John De Sota. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me here. So originally born in Ethiopia. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, so I was born in Ethiopian Addis. Ethiopia is a phenomenal place for those that haven't had a chance to visit. It's definitely worth visiting. The two incredible, incredible natural scenery, but wonderful people and good food. We, we left Ethiopia actually during a, a tough time, <laughs> way back to this, when they actually had a, a, a coup that occurred in the company, in the country. And, we ended up leaving, uh, ended up at a few different countries, eventually ended up in, in Dubai, where I finished my high school, and then came to the U.S. for uh, for college. And you've moved quite a bit. I mean, Ethiopia, then uh, the U.S., I mean, you said Dubai too, now Madrid. I guess one thing that, uh, that I'd like to ask you is, how do you think your worldview has shaped up as a result of being in all these different places all around the world? I, I think there are two. One is I think worldviews is a great, it gives you a very global perspective. You realize in some ways it is a small world, but more importantly, that we are all interconnected. What happens in one place dramatically impacts the rest of the world. And I think recently we, we all got a taste of that from what happened with, uh, with COVID, what happened with uh, the war in Ukraine, that impacts we're all interconnected. But when you travel a lot, I had that feeling way back that it, it's all but also gives you a different, it gives you the ability to get comfortable with change. And as I think about being an entrepreneur, that ability to go through and, uh, and adapt, learn is, is vital. It's hard to be an entrepreneur without doing that. And having been in a lot of different countries, different cultures, different languages, uh, you, you learn the adaptation and you also learn how to do, uh, how, how to interact and, and work with people from different, uh, different places. And I think today's society, that's, uh, that's vital. You can't, do a, uh, you can't do a business without connecting with a lot of people, and, and that has really helped. Now, in your case, it's, it's pretty interesting because you studied in Penn, MIT, but then 
you did your MBA in Europe. I mean, why did you go to Europe? Because, I mean, once you've experienced some of the best schools in the world, I mean, I'm not saying that Europe has bad schools, but I think it's a different mindset, right? That why you have here in the U.S. So why did you make that shift for the MBA? Yes, I, I, I realized that uh, having been in some countries up at that point, that every country is very different. And I'd always spent multiple years in the U.S. I had a very good sense for how it was to go through and study and, uh, and work in, in the U.S. I realized that long term, uh, I needed I needed to understand other places. Europe was critical. I, I realized that Europe is is important for multiple reasons. I wanted to get comfortable going there and doing business there, and that was a reason for going through. And I also spent time later on in in Asia, uh, going through and and uh, living and working in uh, in Japan. And so, just in terms of saying that, I said, yeah, long term, I knew I would, I would need a global approach, and I I didn't want to uh, sort of to leave out these other very important parts from. Uh, from you know the past of forming my uh, my background. Now, in your case, you know, very interesting. You know, as part of your background, that doing the MBA in Europe. I mean, obviously in Europe at that time. You know, we're talking about the late '90s. You know, uh, being an entrepreneur was weird, right? I mean, there in Europe, I, I still remember graduating like like a little bit later. But but it's either you became a lawyer or 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 a banker or a consultant, right? In like one of the big ones, but. Being an entrepreneur, it was like something you quite unique. And I'm sure that for you also, I mean, right after your MBA, you went at it with your first company. So how did you come about, you know, with that idea? And then also, why did you think it was a good idea to 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 bring it to life and go through that route of of starting your own thing? Well, it is a, it is a funny story because when I was finishing in uh, in France, uh, the internet was just starting, and I. I remember going through and spending a lot of time with it and realizing that the internet was going to change a lot of things. You know, I, I literally had a presentation called the internet is going to be big. <laughs> and France was unique at the time because they had a system called Minitel. And I sat there and I realized that all you had to do in France was take everything on Minitel and put it on the internet and you'd be so far ahead of every other place. So I went through and I actually met with multiple companies and all and tried to persuade them. I said, look, you have this on Minitel. Let's do this. We should start porting it. At the time, it was hard to persuade people. And they, they said, look, Minitel, internet will never take over from Minitel. Minitel will be there forever. You know, this is. And so I, was, I got frustrated. And, and that frustration is what led me back into the US at the time to start the first company in instant messaging. But I felt that that perspective was incredible. And I, I feel uh, at that time, at least, uh, France. It has and it still has incredible research, incredible engineers, but I felt that that the risk of venturing out and starting something was was difficult for some of them to to go through themselves. So with this business, I mean, obviously you guys were doing instant messaging and first company, first uh, exit, right? I mean, unbelievable. Now in this case, was was it like much different than the way that the venture world is today when it comes to perhaps capitalizing a business? It, it was very different uh, because I feel like when I did the first uh, startup, the, the cost was very high. So just to do simple things, you needed to, I remember buying server racks, setting up the first service. It, it, everything took time, took money, and it required you to be very, have a tremendous amount of expertise. If I were to contrast that uh, to today, literally anybody could decide they want to develop a mobile app. And without much effort, you could probably go through and create it. That was not the case back then. You needed you needed to go through and really have a lot of expertise. You need a lot of financing to be able to go through and do it. And you, it was also a world where there was a huge premium on software. I would say 
the software revolution was going on back then versus I feel right now that same uh, revolution that went through in software has gone through a lot of other spaces, hardware and uh, fabrication and other things. So I think right now it's expanded a lot, uh, but capital needs were very different. Everything took time and a lot more money back then. Now, in this case, I mean, the company Flash Communications, it ended up being acquired by Microsoft. I mean, that's a wow. So at what point does Microsoft come in the picture? Uh, so when we were actually going through, uh, I think one of the things that got uh, Microsoft very interested in what we were doing is we had a specific focus for enterprises. Uh, where we allowed enterprises to go through, set up, manage uh, their instant messaging systems. And that fit very well with what they were going through and, and doing at Microsoft as well. Uh, so uh, you know, they reached out um, uh, and went through, uh, met them, and it was actually a surprisingly quick process to go through. But they realized the time that it fit very well. Uh, I would give Microsoft a lot of credit for realizing that instant messaging was going to be very important. At the time, a lot of people didn't realize why you need instant messaging at all. The number of people that said, wait, you have email, why would you need instant messaging? But to realize that it was a different form of communication, they realized it, and they also realized that applicability, not only to a general consumer, but also to enterprises. Now, what did you also, I mean, being access, having access to the full cycle as an entrepreneur is, is a really big deal, because once you see how it is, then you know that you can do it again. So... In this case, I mean, going through that full cycle, I mean, what kind of visibility do you think it gave you on the entrepreneurial journey? You know, I, I think uh, what you realize is that as you do your first start, you're making lots of mistakes. <laughs> you're learning a tremendous, everything seems hard the first time. You're just setting up a corporation, you don't know what's involved. So you, the, the learning curve is, is very steep. You're going through and And I think the first one, sort of getting it under your belt makes it much easier the second time. So just like everything else, once you do it multiple times, you get a lot of expertise. And it gets easier as you go through the process. So I think that was one in terms of going through. Uh, it teaches you It teaches you what your own style is. Every has their own style in terms of going through and doing it. It also teaches you what you need from the team around you. So I think all those were very important learnings to go through. It also helped understand the full uh, financing. You know, when you think about do you want to raise money from, from angels, from uh, seed stage, it was the time I went through and understood each of those, what the motivations are. Uh, you know, what works, what doesn't work. But also taught me one final thing, which is the importance of, uh, uh, in a way, uh, there's a tremendous amount of luck involved in it. And we were lucky that we exited before the meltdown. Now, on my third startup, we were, we, you know, we were going to exit. We were three weeks, uh, this, uh, this at MedHealth, we were three weeks. We'd actually signed a definitive agreements to get acquired. And then you had the, I can't figure all the crises out there, but I think this was the 2008 crisis. And when everything melted down, the company just walked away. So the first one, we were really lucky in that we exited in a phenomenal market. Uh, so it was a great time to exit. With my third one, I learned when you need to sort of, sort of take a deep breath, <laughs> tighten your belt, and, and really uh, just know that it's going to be a, a, a long run and, and make sure you're ready for it. Timing. Timing is of the essence. Now, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. Because after the exit of Flash Communications, you went at it again. So tell us about how you came about with this next initiative. And uh, most importantly, what did you learn from it? It, 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 it? Being an entrepreneur is very addictive. It's, it's just the ability to see something created and watch it grow is something you enjoy a tremendous amount. 
uh, with this current initiative and actually with my last one, uh, did this together with uh, my co-founder, Hal Hasuna. And I'll tell you one interesting thing that people don't talk a lot about is it is a lot more fun doing it with somebody else. <laughs> so I think we're lucky we've actually worked together now for nearly 17 years. And it makes, uh, when you go through a startup, it is a tremendous range of emotions you go through. You know, there are good times, bad times. Sometimes you, you have a day where you, you get two or three pieces of bad news in one day. When you're doing it with somebody that you trust and like working with, it completely changes that experience. So I'll say for me, uh, as people think about starting, I would always say it's, it's a lot more fun. It's uh, something you enjoy if you find something you can work with and enjoy working with. Uh, and that part, it also helps you balance each other. Uh, so, you know, somebody's going through a tough time, you have somebody else there. Uh, so for me, I think part of the, the enjoyment and all in, in going through and doing the startup is, is sort of working with somebody who, uh, you know, who's, who's a brother to me. It's, uh, we've worked, we've been through the good times, bad times together and, and trust each other implicitly. And smart leave, you know, again, second company, second exit, you know, acquired by Mary Lynch. So, you know, one thing that is interesting here is the shifts that you've done, you know, from one type of industry to another. And you typically go to industries where you have no previous track record. So how do you go about that? The, so there's a, I think there's a lot of uh, learning you do when you go into a new space. What's unique, the thing right now is it's, it's possible to quickly learn a new space and, and to get comfortable with it. The amount of access to information you have is, is tremendous. So I, I personally mentioned having lived in multiple countries and gone that. I, I'm comfortable with the change and adaptation. For some people, when they think about something new, it could be scary. One piece of advice I got a long time ago is they said, if you can say yes more than you say no to new opportunities. And I've, I've tried to read a lot. It gets you very comfortable with trying out new things. So in this, in terms of going into uh, new spaces, when you go into a new space, especially large spaces where you have a lot of uh, a lot of change going in, it could be the healthcare industry where you, you see it moving and getting consumers a lot more involved in their health. It could be the energy transition where you're trying to move a large part of the population from gas over to electric. There's a lot of opportunity. So I look at those going into new space as, a, a huge opportunity. There's a lot of learning you need to get, but it gives you the ability to bring your experiences from other spaces into this to see opportunity where other people don't. And I'll give you a, a, just a simple example of that. When we went into the full uh, this electric vehicle infrastructure space, when I was sitting down with Harlow and we went through and looked at it, we realized very quickly that this experience of spending a long time waiting for your car to charge just was not going to be a great experience. We sat there and we said, it's, it's a very painful experience. Coming into it with sort of fresh eyes, we said, go for, fast forward, you know, uh, eight, 10 years. If you've moved a large number of people over to, to electric and they're all spending hours every week charging, it's going to actually destroy productivity. <laughs> it's, it's not going to be a great experience. So it, was not, it, so it was beneficial coming from outside to realize, one is there's a big problem. And the second thing, there was nobody really working on a good solution for it. So it gave us a chance to find it. Then it was the, where the, the, the hard work came from, saying, what happened before? What have people tried? What are the new opportunities? Can we come up with a new way to go through and solve it that might actually solve the problem? Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, There's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So 
I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in, in this case, I mean, obviously, second amazing exit, the third one, MedHelp, you alluded to it, you know, where you were empowering people to manage, you know, their health. Uh, it was a community with millions of, of people in there. Now, this one, you know, uh, was acquired by Merck and you were talking about timing. And now, you know, obviously, we... It sounds, you know, everyone is sounding the alarm, you know, on the type of market that we're going into and, and all of that stuff, which, I mean, even Jamie Dimon the other day was saying that there's like a hurricane coming. Uh, the Tesla, you know, uh, founder, uh, Elon Musk saying that there's going to be like, uh, you know, like the worst economy, 10%, you know, cut on jobs. I mean, I guess the, the, the question here, especially given your understanding of cycles, because you've lived through the dot-com bust, now you are... You know, you, you actually went through the Great Recession as well. And now, you know, it sounds like we may go into another downturn. It sounds like you've seen this before. And as they say, history repeats. So mm-hmm. how do you think, you know, that people should go about, you know, weathering the storm during those downturns? What, what have you learned from going through, through, through this two, in two separate occasions with two separate companies? So I think one is, is the realization that, we may go through a downturn, but you will get through the downturn as well. And what gives you the comfort about that is people are actually creating things that do make our life more productive, make it better. Uh, if you look at what you spend your money on, is on things that actually have added a lot of value to you. So I, I feel that in a way, uh, much better about the companies right now than if you look back at the dot-com bus. There are a lot of companies that, that didn't really add a lot of value. Uh, but but that's not true. The, Every single time you use one of these new, I'm actually surprised. I should say, if people look at what they can achieve in one hour today, it is remarkable. It's just the number of things you could go through and do because you have the, the platforms, the applications, the connectivity uh, that allow you to do it. And I, I'll, I'll take a step back. They, uh, if you look at, uh, I spoke a little bit about software and ability to, uh, when we started this with all the software, right now it's gone beyond software. You actually have, uh, you have the ability to easily create applications, which is great. The applications can be built on tremendous data. You have the ability to collect a, a lot of data. Not only collect it, you have the ability to go through and uh, and, and analyze it, do all this AI, do uh, do machine learning on it. You have the ability to to transfer the data. If, if you can move tremendous amounts of data, and I think Google moves 
the data, all the information that they have multiple times around the Earth every day. So the ability to go through internet, you also have the ability to do with like edge computing, to do all this computing at the spot at which it occurs, or to use AWS or one of these other services to do it. All of these combine to allow you to get applications and tools that are tremendous value right now. So I, I actually think, I feel very uh, optimistic about what we have because the companies out there are making our lives better with the real applications and all. So we'll go through a downturn. I, I have no doubt that uh, you know, we'll come through it and we'll come through it with even better services out there. How do you get through a downturn? The, you know, the key term is you need to, at the start of it, to make the adjustments because any adjustments that you're going to make take time to work through your, your company. So if you want to make adjustments, make them early on. Don't wait until the last second. Uh, and then the second is is just being careful as to when you need to go to uh, back to the market. Uh, if you know if you need to rush back to the market, it's going to make things tough. So I think those are the key. If you can if you can make those adjustments, whether uh, whether it you come out much stronger because you have that time to go through and you know make more uh, enhancements, get further in the markets so when you come back, even a better company. Now in your case, now I mean, imagine three exits, right? So you. Didn't have enough with three companies, John. And uh, you went at it again, again, with now your latest baby, with Ampo. So obviously, Ampo, you got started with it right after uh, you wrapped up the chapter with MedHelp. Uh, but, um, but definitely a completely different sector, you know, from what you had done in the past. Uh, and obviously a very exciting one. And you guys have had remarkable traction already. So, so how did you come across, you know, the idea and... Why did you thought you know it was it was the idea to go with? Uh, so you know, we, I think a couple of things happened uh, with Hal and myself. We we were both looking to buy a car uh, eight years ago, and we were both thinking about electric cars. And so we started looking at it. I realized very quickly what would be involved in making that transition over to to electric, and I realized very quickly that it it worked well for a certain group of people. People who have a garage, you can charge your car there. Uh, and then you don't drive too far in the during the day, or you have a second car that's not electric that when you need to, you can switch over to. I didn't fall in that together. It was going to be the only car. I realized that it, for me, that wouldn't go through and work because you then need to have to change what you did to make sure you're thinking a lot more about when do I charge a car? Is it okay? Do a lot more planning. I think people right now, people are, are very busy and giving them yet another overlay of things to think about just it's sort of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. If you, you're about to do a planning, you have your family, this is, and then you need to plan the route, make sure you can stop, plan the, the breaks for food to get charges off. It just becomes too complicated. So we realized that fast forward, we're trying to move everybody over to electric, that this was going to be a major problem. How do you solve the infrastructure, especially for fleets, corporations that manage uh, thousands of vehicles? This was going to add a, a tremendous burden. So we looked at the two things we looked at initially was, was there a solution that was going to be uh, with charging that was going to solve this problem? And initially, we had a lot of people that said, hey, and this is eight years ago, but they said in a couple of years, you'll have these very fast chargers, you know, half a megawatt or, uh, or more that can charge your car pretty quickly. You'll have solid state batteries and this problem will be a non-issue. You'll be charging your car in five to 10 minutes and, and it'll go away. What we realized back then is that it wasn't just a question of developing the batteries that it would take to charge. It wasn't just a question of the, the cost of developing these super high chargers. You actually had to go through and upgrade the entire electric grid. And the reason for that is the electric grids were not set up or developed to provide tremendous amount of charge for a short period 
into random paths, all these different points on, on the grid. They were, they were meant for very predictable. We go through and provide predictable amount of energy across it. And so we said, we're not going to go and solve all these problems uh, you know, for tens of decades. So we said, let's go and come up with a different solution. And the reason people love gas a lot is you stop, you physically move the gas into your car in a few minutes and drive away. And that's what brought us to the full idea of, let's see if we could get battery swapping to work for electric cars. We stop, spend a few minutes, move the batteries into a car and, and drive away. Now, for the people that are listening then, John, to really get the business model of Ample, I mean, what's the business model? How do you guys make money? Uh, so first, think of us as, as gas stations for electric cars. We're delivering energy to your car. You, you stop, spend a few minutes there. We take out the, the de- depleted batteries, put in new batteries into it, and off you go. And, and we charge you for uh, the energy that we put into the car. So very similar to, to gas. Now, battery swapping for some people may it has been tried before. It's actually been around for a very long time. And if you look on uh, online, you'll find videos from uh, the 1940s of uh, actually in, in Spain, they had a, a fleet of taxis that were battery swappable. So it's been around. The biggest uh, recent attempt occurred about uh, a little over 10 years ago. A company called Better Place went through and, and attempted it. They raised a large amount of money and uh, it didn't work out. So before we went very far, we spent a lot of time understanding the lessons from these previous experiences to see what is it we want to learn from them. And we realized that the few things we want to do differently from what had been attempted before was the first is we wanted to make sure that we had a solution that didn't require the car makers to go through and change all the cars to work with you. Because if you develop a solution and they all have to modify the cars, uh, that's never going to work. The, the second thing we wanted to do is we wanted to get a solution that allowed us to use it with different manufacturers. And often before, it, you have a solution that might work with one manufacturer and, and that doesn't work. So we looked at the best qualities of gas. Gas works across different cars. You know, it works with any, any car out there. Uh, and we wanted to bring that to swapping. And on the other side, we knew that in order for this to really scale, you needed a way to deploy uh, swapping stations very quickly and affordably across the world. And so that was the last part. It's coming up with a fully autonomous swapping station that we can deploy in a few days. Now, in your guys' case, I mean, having been at it for so long, having gone through the full cycle as an entrepreneur, you know how important these people. And when you think about money, you think about networks, you think about people. That's the way that people have that have gone through it, you know, really think about it, not just money itself. So in this case, you guys have raised quite a bit. I mean, how much capital have you guys raised and why did you end up going with the investors that you chose for this journey? You're exactly right. It's the investors that you raise are extremely important. So we've actually raised over 250 million um, and have a mix of financial and strategic investors. Um, the financial investors include uh, more ventures. Uh, we have uh, Blackstone, um, and then we have uh, some very specific mobility funds out there, uh, New Ground Ventures, uh, uh, MKB, and a few others. Uh, and then we also have, on the other side, we have uh, strategics. And for us, our strategic investors are all energy companies. You have uh, Shell, Enios from Japan, uh, Repsol from uh, from Spain. Uh, so you have energy companies that go through. So those are the two types of investors that, uh, that we have. Uh, it was an interesting process going through and raising it. Uh, because when we initially went and started speaking to people and told them, we have this idea for creating this fully autonomous station that can, we can go through and deploy that uh, will be able to swap cars, uh, batteries in an electric vehicle in a few minutes. 
a lot of people thought we were crazy. <laughs> so we did speak to a large number of investors. And even though a lot of investors will tell you that their focus is, is you know, breakthrough technologies and or, or uh, deep tech, in the end, a lot of them uh, want uh, sort of the standard software companies or they want uh, the next Uber for something. So it was it was hard to to get people to understand opportunity. In fact, we even had a VC come back to us and say, look, I love the team. Uh, we'll give you the money, but can you guys just focus on some sort of software startup? <laughs> uh, so, it was, so it was initially hard to go through and and, uh, and raise it. The investors we have were incredible because they understood the vulnerability space, they understood the energy space, uh, and they saw how this could work. And I think the key thing for us is there are a lot of reasons why a company may fail. You know, there's, there's a lot of potential hurdles. What you want in an investor is uh, is understanding what could happen if things go right. And I think that's the difference is, are you looking at investors that are thinking about the 50 reasons why this could fail? And there, there are probably a hundred reasons why it could fail. But are you there with the people that are going to partner with you and say, we'll help you get the things to work out because we see the tremendous potential when it does work out? That's incredible. Now, in your guys' case, actually, it took some time. You know, you got started about 2014. You raised the Series A in, 2000, in 2018. So why? I mean, obviously, you guys were self-financing this thing. But at what point do you realize you were ready to accept external investment? You know, so we um, we came into this space uh, not being from the auto space, uh, and we also didn't know if there was a solution. We understood what would be required, so we said before we take anybody else's money, let's spend the time to actually go through and solve the really deep uh, tech uh, problems out there. Uh, you know, can we actually create a battery and work on a car without us having them change anything? Can we have the same battery work across different cars? So we spent the first few years sort of really going through solving and proving all those problems. Uh, and then once we knew we had solved all of those, uh, then we said we were ready to go through. So we basically de-risked from a technology perspective, convinced ourselves that we had all, everything we needed to actually go through and create a, a solution that worked and was scalable. And then we went and, and uh, did the Series A. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight, John, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Ampol is fully realized. What's, what does that world look like? You know, I, I think for us is, is to, one is we get the transition over to electric, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but the world would be where we do have a billion electric cars on the road. And we have actually, they're as productive, if not more productive than they are right now with, uh, with gas. I think that's true. But there is an important one. A lot of people uh, go through and equate going electric to going green. But if the, often that you can actually go electric and not go green. And what I mean by that is an electric car can have a higher carbon footprint than a gas car. Uh, in order to compensate for that and actually go green, you need to run it on renewable energy for, you know, for a while. What's happening is people buy an uh, electric car. They often buy it with a bigger battery than they need because they, they have charging anxiety. Uh, and so even though you're driving short term for one time when you need it, they buy these uh, larger batteries, so they have a higher carbon footprint. But then they may be fast charging that car. Fast charging is often not working on renewable energy uh, and may also degrade the battery. So you end up using it not necessarily on renewable energy. You could be using it on, on non-renewable energy. And then you get rid of that car earlier because you've, you've degraded the battery. The combination of that means that you may actually have been better keeping the gas car and 
and driving it for 12, 15 years and switching over. So when you think about the vision, we want to make sure that not only have we made the transition, we haven't created anxiety for people. We've actually made it just as easy, if not easier than the experience right now. And we've made it beneficial for the, for the environment by making something that really is, uh, is green. Now, obviously, incredible journey that you've had, John, as an entrepreneur. I mean, all these uh, companies that you've built, you know, scaled, you know, exited, unbelievable, like to such big players like we were discussing, Microsoft, Merck, Mary Lynch. I mean, now, obviously, you're working on your biggest baby to date. If you had the opportunity, John, to have a chat with your younger self, maybe that John that was coming out of that MBA and and having, you know, being able to sit down that younger self and, and, and give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, I think, so a couple of different. One is, I think, the idea of the co-founder, which uh, I think is vital. And one I think I told you realized later. And a, 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 attached with that is, I realized over time that it's, you, uh, when you choose a co-founder, starting a company with a friend may not be the best thing. Because you may not be friends that long. <laughs> I actually think it's easier to become friends with a co-founder than it is to co-found with a friend. And I think there's a very big difference there. You know, uh, as I mentioned, Hal like, is, is, is a brother to me and we've worked together. But we've learned uh, part of working with somebody else is you know what they're good at, but you know what they're not good at, and you know how to go through and resolve stuff. I think that's critical. The second one is also the... Uh, I would say the support system around you. It is, it, it, you know, being a, uh, a founder is, is a lot of work. It can be stressful. And you need to make sure you're surrounded with family and friends that, that provide you with support uh, because it's, it's, it's going to be a, a, a tough journey. So I think those are important. I'd say the last part in terms of it is you can't start it worrying about is it going to be a success or this, that. There are a lot of variables uh, in there. You need to enjoy the journey. And people all say, you really have to, because you know, that's where you spend most of your time on it. So uh, I realized for me that in going through and doing this, is a realization for me that it's not important to me what people I don't know and all think about to me or how they measure my success or go through. What matters to me is just the, the family and support I have around me. And whether a venture succeeds or fails, I still have the love and support of those around me. And that's really important as an entrepreneur because then you, you, you can focus on what you need to do and, and push for it to be successful. I love that, John, because the entrepreneurial journey can be a very lonely journey. And in many instances, you know, in many, many, many instances, it also involves depression because going through the ups and downs is, is really difficult. So I love, you know, that you touched on, on, on having that support around you. So, so, John, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, if you want to reach out to me, LinkedIn is great. Just you can send me a, a quick uh, message there, and you know I, I respond very quickly. Uh, I love meeting new people. I have lots of contacts out there. I, I do spend my time partly in, in Europe, in Madrid, and partly in San Francisco. Uh, so you know, getting together for a drink in the those places is also a great way. Amazing. Well, hey John, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much. It's, it's fun talking to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.